Welcome to Dayspring Fellowship. Whether you are with us in person, are joining us via live stream, or watching on demand at some later date, we're glad for the opportunity to worship with you today. If you are part of our Dayspring family, welcome home. If you are new to Dayspring, we want you to feel like you've come home as well. When you think about it, it's amazing that through the gift of technology, we can connect to one another regardless of location and worship together. No matter when or where you are watching from, we're glad you are here with us. Here at Dayspring, we believe nothing is more important than your spiritual growth. We are committed to helping you thrive no matter where you are on your spiritual journey. Perhaps you're just curious about church, or maybe you're just looking for some hope. Maybe you don't know why you're here this morning. That's okay. Bring your questions and your doubts. You are welcome here. Your journey matters to us, and we would love nothing more than to walk with you. You can learn more about us as a church by exploring our website at dsf.church or by checking out our Facebook page. I'm Chris Voigt, lead pastor at Dayspring. I'd love to connect with you if you have questions about today's message or about the next step in your spiritual journey. If you want more information about Dayspring and getting connected into our community, I'd be glad to help you do that as well. To help you get the most out of the message today, we've prepared some discussion questions to help you process what you are learning on your own or with others. You can find the discussion guide in our resources section of our website. And now, let's worship together. Well, thanks to a global pandemic, uh, it seems like ages ago, eons even. But in the spring of 2019, Didi and I, along with Pastor Michelle and Tony, decided to celebrate our 25th, our respective 25th anniversaries by taking a trip through Italy, including a stopover in Paris at the end. Uh, We fell in love with Venice. Tony had spent hours researching our accommodations, and we VRBO'd an apartment on the island with no cars. There was so much peace at night, not much uh, city noise at all, and we'd all go back there in a a heartbeat. Uh, From there, we headed to Florence. Now, we also did Pisa and then Rome for a week, but for today, Florence was the next stop. Uh, home of Pont Vecchio, which in English means old bridge. And it is just that, a, an historic old bridge that has survived since the medieval times. It's cool and all, and people from all over the world come to see it. Uh, this was the crowd in the area that day, not during high tourism season, by the way. This was low tourism season. We actually missed the crowds. Uh, Besides the Pont Vecchio, uh, Florence is home to one of the most famous cathedrals in Italy, the Duomo, which has also been around since medieval times. We didn't even get into it. The lines were too long. But since there are more than 3,000 cathedrals you can visit in Italy, we thought we'd be all right in the end. We were really more interested in the Uffizi Gallery anyway. I should probably tell you that none of us are fine art people. Uh, We generally go through a museum pretty quickly. You know, 
like it, love it, don't understand it, ugh, they should have put some clothes on that one, what in the world? Like none of us uh, could stand around and just stare analyzing the finer points of a painting more than a couple of minutes. I know that that makes us art hillbillies, culture cretins. I can live with that. I am an artist, and I appreciate the beauty of art in all sorts of mediums. I appreciate the work it takes to make great art. And there are some great pieces of historic art that I have enjoyed seeing and still want to see. Uh, but I guess I am just a superficial enjoyer of the medium of painted art. Modern art is more my style. God gave us art to express what we are feeling in the depths of our being. And when you look at much of medieval art, that's a window to the soul that should have stayed shut. But with that said, in addition to the uh, paintings, the Uffizi Gallery is home to one of the most famous statues in the world. And one that was on our bucket list of statues to see. David, one of Michelangelo's great works. Standing at just under 17 feet, a picture doesn't really convey the awesomeness of being in person. Uh, in person, you can better see the disproportionate hands and head. Both are bigger than they, um, than they should be, probably because the statue was originally intended to sit on a cathedral roof, and Michelangelo would have wanted these important parts to be seen better from a distance. He was flawlessly carved from a single piece of marble. I've always wondered if artists like Michelangelo ever made mistakes when they were chipping away at a block of marble. You know, they're, they're working to get just the perfect curve of the cheek, and then someone walks into the room and startles them, and all of a sudden there's an acne pockmark. Uh, with most of the statues that have survived the centuries, we'd never know. Time and Mother Nature have already done their damage. Uh, we don't know what was intentional and what was uh, caused by someone dropping that heavy piece of marble in transit or by years and years of wind and rain. Uh, who, who knows? I'm sure there are experts. At this art hillbilly just doesn't know. But as it turns out, yes, artists did make mistakes. And we wouldn't have any art if they had to find a new piece of marble every time they made one. There would be lots of partial Davids in that case. One with no leg, one missing a nose, uh, one missing a foot. Uh, almost done, but ah, dang, only four toes. Can't, uh, can't we just slip a shoe on instead? But nope, got to start again. It's not a very practical approach to fixing the problem. Instead, instead artists would melt wax into the flaw and sculpt it the way they wanted. And it was hardly noticeable until it got warm in the sun. And then some kid is traumatized by seeing a nose melting off of a face. <laughs> but that's how they fixed it. And then when it came time to sell the piece, the great artists, the dependable ones, made sure to advertise their work as Sinna Sera. Sinna Sera. Uh, two Latin words that mean without wax. Two Latin words that for us are the roots of the word sincere. Uh, look at that. An art history lesson, an English lesson, all to lead us into a Bible lesson. We are well-rounded here at Dayspring. That's culture. Not ugly paintings. <laughs> sincere. Without wax. 
with integrity. Now, we're three weeks into our First John series, How Do You Recognize a Christian? As you might guess from the title, we are looking at some of the defining characteristics of a life lived in fellowship with God and other Christ followers. The word fellowship means in common. Uh, Jesus came to give us something in common with the creator of the universe. Fellowship is found in a deep abiding intimacy which will lead to more and more in common with God as we over time become more like Jesus. And these common characteristics give us confidence or assurance that we've placed our faith in the right, real Jesus. As Christ followers, John wants to ease our minds when we have moments of doubt. We all question whether we are on the right track or not at some point or points on our journey. And when those doubts come, we can look at the fruit of our lives. And if we see these characteristics, we'll know that we're on the right track. If we don't see these characteristics, it doesn't necessarily mean we aren't saved. It just means that we've gotten off track. These are guardrails that help keep us on the straight and narrow path. Uh, For those of you in the room or watching online who haven't bought into this Jesus stuff yet, uh, maybe you're just checking Jesus out. Maybe you are skeptical about it all because most of the Christians you have experience with or see in the news just don't seem very Christian. And to you, we want to say welcome. It's okay to be skeptical at daystring. It's okay to have questions and doubts. We have to admit we don't really live out all of the things you will hear us talking about very well all of the time. We often give you a warped picture of Jesus, and we're sorry about that. And here at Dayspring, at least, we're committed to living out our faith with more integrity every day. We are committed to living without wax, sincerely becoming like Jesus. But... If you are just exploring faith and you want to know what following Christ should look like, the Bible is the best place to get that answer. We will always be a dim reflection of Jesus. Even with the best of intentions, we'll always let you down at some point. With that said, when you want to find help for your spiritual journey, look look for Christ followers who exhibit these characteristics, even if they do it a little imperfectly. Now, the first characteristic we covered was joy. Deep, abiding intimacy with Jesus always leads to joy. It is a gift of the Holy Spirit. The world may swirl around us like a tornado. Things might be a mess culturally or in our lives, but we still have the glow of joy when we are abiding in Jesus. The reverse is also true. No joy is a symptom of an intimacy with Jesus problem. It's a symptom with a cure. Pursue intimacy with Jesus. Biblical fellowship cures the joy problem. The second characteristic of following uh, of fellowship with Jesus is walking or living in the light. Sinlessness is what we covered last week. No sin. A God is light and in him there is no darkness. Therefore, if we are walking with him, we are walking in the light, not the dark. Unfortunately, we rather enjoy dancing with the dark. We 
like to get right up to the edge of sin, thinking that we can control ourselves, but we always end up in the dark every time. Walking in the light isn't about avoiding the dark. We don't really focus on the dark at all if we want to be successful at walking in the light. We focus on the light. More light, brighter light, purer light. And as we learned last week, one of the first symptoms of oncoming darkness is deception. Our dance with the dark begins with deceiving others, deceiving ourselves, and deceiving God. Deception invites darkness. Truth, even if it is ugly truth, brings light to dark places. But the lack of sin is only one side of the walking in the light coin. There is another side. Which brings us up to 1 John chapter 2, verse 3 this morning. Now here, John presents to us a second requirement for walking in the light and the third defining characteristic of a sincere Christ follower. The O word. A four-letter word for too many of us. Obedience. Walking in the light requires not only that we not sin, light, walk, light walkers are also obedient to God's word. Now, here's what he writes. And we can be sure that we know him if we obey his commandments. Now, remember that 1 John chapter 5 tells us that John wrote this letter that we might be assured that we have eternal life. So if you ever wonder about whether you are saved or not, simply look at whether or not you are obedient to God's word. Are you more obedient today than you were yesterday? Is that a pattern for your life? A slow obedience in the right direction? If so, you're good. John puts it this way because of the way we think. He's closing the loopholes for us. You see, we think uh, in, of sinlessness in terms of what we didn't do. Well, I, I didn't bite my teen's head off when they didn't have their homework done again, so I'm good. I didn't sin. When my coworker came and vented about our boss, I didn't say anything, so I'm good. No sin. I do my job. Just enough to get by. I'm not putting any extra effort in. They don't appreciate it when I do. But I haven't sinned. I do my job. I'm good. I wrote my tithe check. I lived up to my obligation. So I haven't sinned. Now, here's one. Sue, who works in our office, one of the most godly ladies I know, told me that years ago, Eddie came to the office asking for help. He was homeless and very dirty. And Sue and Kathy, who worked in the office at the time, got him some food and spent some time talking with him, basically being like Jesus to him. And before he left, Eddie asked if Sue would give him a hug. Not an inappropriate kind of hug. You could tell he just needed human contact. But he was dirty. Sue said yes, even though inside she screamed, no! She didn't sin, right? But then the Holy Spirit said, did you really hug him? You see, we see sin 
as the absence of wrong. But that alone is an incomplete view of what walking in the light looks like. It isn't just the absence of wrong. It's the presence of right. No, I didn't bite my teen's head off. But I didn't treat her in an understanding way either, which is what God's Word says. No, I didn't badmouth my boss with my coworker, but I didn't stop him either. I didn't correct his misconception. I didn't redirect him toward honor. I let him think. I agree with him. Yes, I do my job, but God calls me to work with excellence, as if he were my boss. Yes, I wrote my tithe check, but God loves a cheerful giver, not an obligation satisfier. You see what I mean? It isn't sufficient to just not sin. Obedience means doing right, too. That's what it means to walk in the light. It's both and. A while back, some friends left Dayspring and walked all over me in the process. It was pretty painful. Uh, It's okay to disagree, but there is a non-destructive way to disagree, and they didn't take that path. I try to be a good Christian, so I forgave them. It, It took a while to process the hurt, but I did get there. You couldn't say that I loved them like Jesus anymore, but I didn't hate them either. I was just indifferent, neutral. And then God spoke to my heart, and he said, Chris, hate isn't the opposite of love. Apathy is. I want you to love them. And though I've got to be honest, I'm not there yet. I'm somewhere still in between. See, it's not enough to not sin. Obedience means doing right, too. Now, John continues in verse 4. If someone claims, I know God, but doesn't obey God's commandments, that person is a liar and is not living in the truth. But those who obey God's word truly show how completely, that's how sincerely, how completely they love him without wax. That is how we know we are living in him. So obedience is the benchmark. That's how we know we are on the right track. Which, of course, begs the question, I know some of you hate it when I ask questions like this. I won't mention any names, but you know who you are. Keeping God's commandments isn't a condition of knowing him. If it were, we would, be, uh, we would be believing in salvation by works. But keeping God's commandments is a clear sign that we do know God. As theologian Daniel Aiken says in his commentary, it is a life of true worship that delights in the commands of God for no other reason then it delights in the God who gives those commands. Obedience is how we fully realize intimacy with God, just for the joy of knowing him. So here's the question. In what part of your life is your walking in the light incomplete? Maybe you aren't sinning, but you aren't quite to the place of doing the good yet, doing the right thing, the presence of right. Go do that. Not now. Wait until the service is over. But go do that. Prove the sincerity of your convictions. Melt the wax and deal with the truth. And then verse 6. 
Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. The secret to obedience, here's what John means, the secret is found in abiding with Christ. This, con- this concept comes straight from Jesus. In the Gospel of John chapter 15, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man abides in me or remains in me, he shall bear much fruit. Uh, the key phrase here in 1 John is, in this verse is, as Jesus did. Walking in the light means living the way he did when he walked the earth. It's following his example, doing the things he did the way he did them. It's being completely dependent on him for all that we need in order to live for and serve him. Under the power of the Holy Spirit, it isn't that we imitate him, although you will see that word in Paul's writings, it's that we incarnate him. The incarnation is when Jesus physically came to earth. When we incarnate him, he lives in us, through us. In fact, that's the only way we'll ever really conquer sin in our lives. We don't have the strength to do it on our own. Our broken bodies long for sin with a power that we can't stop without Jesus living in, being incarnate in us. That's walking in the light. Now, here's where John's headed. You can sum up what he said about walking in the light like this. Just as one of the outcomes of true fellowship is joy, the outcome of walking in the light is love. You might say that this one word pulls the lack of wrong and the presence of right together. Do this and you're doing the others. Uh, Let's look at the rest of this section, beginning in verse 7 down through verse 11. Uh, Dear friends, I am not writing a new commandment for you. Rather, it is an old one you have had from the very beginning. This old commandment, to love one another, is the same message you heard before, yet it is also new. Jesus lived the, er the truth of this commandment, and you are also living it. For the darkness is disappearing and the true light is already shining. If anyone claims, I am living in the light, but hates a fellow believer, that person is still living in darkness. Anyone who loves a fellow believer is living in the light and does not cause others to stumble. But anyone who hates a fellow believer is still living and walking in darkness. Such a person does not know the way to go, having been blinded, By the darkness. Now, in John's mind, light, life, and love are three words that belong together. They are all peas in a pod. Three sections of this letter tie the three words together. Here in chapter two, and we'll see it again in chapters three and four. The repetition reveals how important this concept is to the Christian life. Christian love is affected. By darkness. If we walk in the dark, we will not love the way we are called to love. Just as light can't coexist with the dark, love is also incompatible with the dark. And in these three sections, here in here and chapters three and four, John gives us three reasons why we should love. First, here in chapter two, we should love simply because God commanded us to love. It's the ultimate presence of right in our obedience. 
In chapter 3, we'll see that we should love because we've been born of God and God's love lives in us. And then in chapter 4, we love because he first loved us. Unfortunately, we bring our cultural understanding of love to our faith. In many ways, it's, be, it's become a throwaway word. I love Didi. I love my kids. I really love my granddaughter Avery. But I also love tacos. I love the Jonas Brothers. Okay, not really, but someone must because they sell out concerts all over the world. I love a sunny day. I love Diet Coke. Did I say I love Didi? Didi, are you listening? You were at the top of the list. I don't want to sleep on the sofa tonight. I clearly I don't love Didi at the same level I love tacos. You might be able to argue that I love her the same as Diet Coke. But you'd lose. She'd win. By the skin of her teeth, probably. But she'd win. In the original language of the New Testament, which was Greek, uh, it, was a, it was a much more precise language than English. The Greeks had eight different words to describe love. And we don't have time to look at them all, but for comparison's sake, let's just touch on a, a couple. In Greek, the lowest level of love is eros, which is where we get the English word erotic. It's exactly that, sensual love. And this word for love doesn't appear at all in the New Testament. A higher level of love is philia. Philia carries the idea of friendship love. It is deeper and more meaningful than eros. But also isn't the kind of love we are called to as Christ followers. In this passage, John uses the Greek word for the highest level of love, agape. Agape is the word for God's love toward man, a Christian's love for other Christians and God's love for the church. Agape is, I would take a bullet for you kind of love. I would lay down my life for you. It's unconditional, unselfish, unearned, and probably all of the other positive unwords. It, its truest form that we could probably connect with is like a mother's love for her baby. Instant, unconditional, unreciprocated at first. That's the kind of love that is an outcome of life in the light. And where that isn't true in your life, you have a clogged intimacy with God, sin or obedience problems. You have darkness even if the other person is an idiot and doesn't deserve it, your lack of love is a you problem. It affects your light. It gets in the way of your intimacy with God. You can't offload any of the blame on someone else. So let's ju jump back to verse 7 and then the first sentence of verse 8. Dear friends, I am not writing a new commandment for you. Rather, it is an old one you have had from the very beginning. This old commandment to love one another is the same message you heard before, yet it is also new. So is it an old commandment or a new one? What does John mean here? Now, obviously, the concept of love had been around for a while. It was a command in the Old Testament. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Love your neighbor. 
The concept of love wasn't new. So what does John mean? Well, just as the Greeks had eight words for love, they had two words for new. The first one means new in time, as in I just bought a new car, a more recent model. But if I bought a car that could fly and I were Greek, I would use the other word for new, which means new in quality. It's radically different from my old car. In English, we might use the word recent to indicate new in time, or fresh, meaning new in quality or character. What John is conveying here is that the command to love, though not new in time, was new in character in three important ways. First, it was new in emphasis. Now, as I said, love was a part of the Old Testament law. The, the command to love was one, just one of 613 laws. And when John mentioned obedience to the commandments of God in the earlier verses, that's what he was referring to. But here and throughout the rest of the New Testament, the command to love gets lifted out and placed above the rest and elevated to a position of preeminence. It now trumps all other 612 laws. It is head and shoulders above the rest. In Romans chapter 13, the Apostle Paul says, This kind of love, agape love, fulfills all the other laws. They're all satisfied. Uh, think of it this way. Uh, one of the Ten Commandments is, Thou shalt not commit adultery. I pulled out my old King James for that. Thou shalt not commit adultery. I can not commit adultery and still not love my wife the way God tells me to. But if I agape my wife, the way John is describing, the way Jesus would, I would never commit adultery anyway. The lack of love is a greater offense than even adultery. I'll cross that boundary first. Another commandment, thou shalt not bear false witness against your neighbor, i.e. don't lie about someone. I can not lie about someone, but that doesn't mean I love them. But if I agape them, I'd never lie about them anyway. You get the picture. Love is the fulfillment of the whole law because it trumps all the rest. It is a higher calling, the highest calling. Love like this makes the other 612 laws unnecessary because agape love would never stoop to that level anyway. Which is Jesus' point, the Apostle Paul's point, and John's point here. Warren Wearsby says this about this kind of love. It is important that we understand the meaning of Christian love. It is not a shallow, sentimental emotion that Christians try to work up so they can get along with one another. It is a matter of the will rather than an emotion. It is determining that you will allow God's love to flow through you toward others in loving ways. It is a choice, a decision. It isn't fake or contrived. It is a matter of obedience. So love trumps all is a new emphasis. Second, this command is new in example. Uh, continuing in verse 8. Jesus lived the truth of this commandment, and you are also living it. For the darkness is disappearing, and the true light is already shining. 
Jesus lived this out. He modeled it for us. He showed us what it looked like to love the least of these sinners, saints, and those who considered themselves saints. He met people where they were emotionally, spiritually, and physically, and then called them to something higher. He even loved his enemies. For those who orchestrated his death on the cross, he forgave them. He is the perfect example of what living out this new commandment to love looks like. He is the new illustration of the old truth that God is love and life, and love in him brings joy and victory. And in us, as we walk in the light, light chases away the dark, it chases away the hate. The brighter the light shines, the more darkness it chases away. More love equals more light. So new in emphasis, new in example. And the third thing new about this command is that it is new in experience. Verse 9, if anyone claims I am living in the light but hates a fellow believer... That person is still living in darkness. Anyone who loves a fellow believer is living in the light and does not cause others to stumble. But anyone who hates a fellow believer is still living and walking in darkness. Such a person does not know the way to go, having been blinded by the darkness. This new is the quality kind of new. It's fresh, at least back then. Now we kind of take it for granted more often than not. Jesus, Paul, and John are elevating the quality kind of love we are called to live out if we are walking in the light. From their perspective, it is impossible to be in fellowship with God and not be in fellowship with another Christian at the same time. One impacts the other. Always. In English, we see the word hate. But I think that makes it too easy for us to water down. I don't hate anyone. But that doesn't mean I agape, agape either. To love other Christians the way John is describing is to treat them like God treats them, like God treats us. Anything else, anything less, is hate. And let me remind you, as we learned last week, what happens in your mind is just as important as what comes out of your mouth. Don't think you can compartmentalize your Christianity that way. You know, I'll smile and nod at you on the outside while thinking, what an idiot on the inside. That's not love. Under the Old Testament law, you could get away with that. Old Testament law focused more on actions than motives. Jesus raised the bar when he said that even fantasizing about adultery is sin. That wasn't true in the Old Testament. Just the physical act was sin. Not anymore. Motive matters as much as action. Now the first tragic result of not agapeing this way, I just made up my own word there, not agapeing this way is that we are dancing in the dark. We aren't walking in the light, even though we are probably self-deceived that we are. The second tragic result of not agapeing, we see in these verses, is that uh, we become a stumbling block to others. There are consequences to the sin of, I'll say hate, but you know what I mean by now. Uh, years ago, we went through a church split. It was ugly on many sides. So ugly that I, I decided I'd never go through one again. I'd just quit and move on. 
Not only was the conflict a stumbling block in vertical and horizontal fellowship for those directly involved, but the ripple effect harmed many more people. Some people left and went to other churches, but too many left and never went back to church at all. We were all stumbling blocks to people who were just trying to learn how to love like Jesus, and we weren't very good role models. Love makes us stepping stones instead of stumbling blocks. A third tragic result of an agape-less life is that it puts me in the dark. It slows down my spiritual journey. Instead of becoming like Jesus, I get stuck. And really, it's worse than that. Technically, there is no stuck. You are either becoming like Jesus or you are becoming less like Jesus. No one stays the same. The darkness is never satisfied. It always wants more. Which also makes agapeing the way Jesus did a matter of self-interest, which is the only self-interest that gets a stamp of approval. Passionately pursuing a life like Jesus. Passionately pursuing a life like Jesus means that we all need to level up our love. In whatever uh, relationships you are missing agape, level up. Don't just philia, agape. Take your love to the next level for you, for them, for Jesus. Just level up. You'll never be sorry you loved more like Jesus. Now, all of this leads to one final question. Who do you need to level up with? You uh, have been apathetic about maybe. Maybe pick the person who's the hardest for you to love. Of course, if that's too big of a challenge, start with someone a little less easier. But just stretch yourself. And then decide to level up your love. And don't just say it. Do it. Make a choice. Decide to love like Jesus. That's how you recognize Christ followers. They love well. That's how you know you are on the right track. You love well. On your way home today or on your way from the living room to the kitchen, tell your spouse or an accountability partner who you are going to level up with. There's probably a lot of you who need to level up with your spouse. So maybe... Tell them that you're going to. If every marriage agaped, there would be no marriage problems. It would solve 99.9% of them. Invite someone to help you brainstorm ways that you can love better, to hold you accountable. Agape is a choice. It's not an emotion. It doesn't matter how you feel about it. It matters how much you've decided to love God about it. If you don't have someone to tell, you can always email me or someone else on staff. We agape this kind of stuff. Let's pray. Father, this kind of love is so out of reach for us without Jesus. I mean, thank you that, that Jesus showed us how it's done. <laughs> but thank you even more that, that you didn't leave us alone to do it on our own. 
with the Holy Spirit living inside of us, we have the power to love the way you've called us to love. We just have to choose to do it. Help us to choose to agape those in our lives that we don't agape. If for no other reason, then it's another way that we can agape you. Father, in these moments, just speak to our spirit. Whisper the names of the people that we need to love the way you've called us to. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us in worship today. Whether you are part of our Dayspring family or just joined us for the first time, we'd love to walk with you on your spiritual journey. Feel free to drop us an email if you have questions or want more information. For those of you who choose to invest financially at Dayspring, thank you for your generosity and your commitment to helping others grow. Every gift, large or small, matters, and God never ceases to surprise us with what He is able to do because of your commitment to following Him in every part of your life. If you're our guest today, please know that we consider your time a gift to us and this service our gift to you. There is no expectation or obligation for you to give. For those of you who would like to partner financially, there are three easy ways for you to give. Please see the online giving section of our website or text GIVE to the number on your screen. And for those of you who still use them, you can also mail a check to us. We'd like to thank those of you who subscribe, like, and share these messages with your friends. If you are listening on our podcast, feel free to leave a review. More of Jesus is the answer to all of life's problems, and we appreciate your help inviting others to check him out. We'll see you next week.